Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25 through verse 37. And just a heads up, as I will make clear in the sermon, there's a lot here besides just the parable. Let's see it in its setting. So keep listening in these introductory verses. Beginning in verse 25. And behold... A lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the tests. And he said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And uh, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Thus far we read in God's holy inspired word, may he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey. Amen. Parable of the Good Samaritan. It's one of those easy texts of the Bible, right? We kind of know what it's about, do we? I'm not here to turn it on its head, but we need to study it as it sits there at its face value. One of the great uh, preachers of our day, and he's uh, written many commentaries, is Dale Ralph Davis. He's a southerner. A lot of his stories have a southern folksy feel to them. And he's known for being rather blunt and clear in his writing. When he talks about the parable of the Good Samaritan, he says, hang on. The parable of the Good Samaritan is bad news. The parable of the Good Samaritan is bad news. He had me hooked. In in what way? It shows us how to love our neighbor. And yeah, I need to do better at that. But why did Jesus tell the parable and to whom did he tell it? Hoping to make what point? You see, Jesus' parable 
takes up this understanding. If loving your neighbor as yourself has anything to do with eternal life, it's clear that this lawyer does not have life because he does not have love. Like the two characters in the parable. The parable is a test for love's presence. For the reality of that which will indicate eternal life is possessed. For the man to whom Jesus first spoke the parable, there was conviction. He was exposed. The law presented him as guilty. That seems to be where Jesus is going. This this parable, in the larger context, is an example of those who thought they were wise and understanding back in verse 21. Previously, when we looked at to whom God revealed himself, not to the wise and the understanding, but to the lowly. This lawyer, this expert in the law of God, had missed the heart of the law of God and did not practice it. So Jesus tells the parable and makes the point so that those of us who are likewise religious might face this test of love. And hopefully understand what's required to pass. Let's look first at the law of love. The law of love. And it really is talking about the law of God. But the law of God is a law of love, is it not? This lawyer comes and it does start with a question, albeit disingenuous. Uh, A lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. So his question isn't really looking for the right answer. His question is looking to see Jesus trip or stumble or, or falter in his words. Nevertheless, Jesus can deal with that. As we will see, he can deal with that much better than anyone else. The lawyer is asking about eternal life. But as Ralph Davis says, eternal life is not the passion of his soul, but a topic for debate. He is not wanting to satisfy a crying need, but to engage in a battle of wits. That's the one who's asking. He was wise and understanding in that day. Let me talk to this rabbi from Galilee. So he asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? A wonderful question. A question that churches should be talking about. A question you should talk about with your friends and give them the answer. Notice how Jesus replies. He doesn't just give him the answer. Jesus gives him a question. What's written in the law? What do you read there? (laughs) Don't you love it? Jesus takes this guy who's hoping to see him trip and fall with a question. Jesus just pitches him a question. Right back at you. He puts him to the test. You're a lawyer in the things of God law. How do you read it? What is written in the law? You see, for Jesus, the law of God, the Old Testament, is the definitive, unerring standard of faith and practice. It is clear who God is and what he requires. It's all spelled out. God's word has been revealed so that we might be wise, even wise unto salvation. Isn't that what Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy? Paul's talking about the scriptures, the holy writings. 
He said to Timothy, from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I think the lawyer was wise in the law to a degree, but he hadn't followed Paul. He hadn't followed through on the scriptures which testify of Christ, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in the Messiah. Not able to make you wise for salvation that you live and keep the law perfectly. There begins the divergence. The law of God has a purpose. Not that we would become our own saviors by following the formula, but that as we read the law, we would see our need for the Savior and see the one and only Savior, Jesus, who kept the law perfectly. The answers about eternal life are found in the Word of God. The Bible is just as relevant now as it was 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago. May we read it and turn to it and study it. And may the Bible make us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. But it's interesting how it brings us to faith. The Puritans talked about the law and the gospel as revealed in the Bible like a needle and thread. The law of God is like the needle that pierces and penetrates underneath our superficial religiousness. It penetrates and brings conviction, but the thread it draws is the gospel of grace and forgiveness in Christ. The Bible does both. The law of God and the grace of God, they work together as we will see yet today. So the answers are in God's word. What does the lawyer answer? What does he know about the word? Just a quick heads up, he gets it right. He gets it right. He knows the answers. He knows what the Bible says, as do many listening to this sermon. He knows the correct answer. He quotes two Old Testament passages and just conflates them into the common answer about the two great commandments, the biggest commandments. And they both have to do with love. From Deuteronomy 6, he draws. First, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4, 5, and 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. And that's what he begins with. You shall love the Lord your God. He doesn't mention that it's supposed to be on your heart. Then he moves on to the second great commandment, which is found in a couple of places, very clearly in Leviticus 19, verse 18. Leviticus 19, 18, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Perhaps the lawyer had been present when Jesus said that the greatest commandment in the law, out of all six, seven hundred commands in the Old Testament, Jesus said, love for God first. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus knew the law. This lawyer knows the law and gives the correct answer as Jesus affirms. Verse 28, he said to him, you've answered correctly. 
do this and you will live. Is Jesus saying that by keeping the law you're going to save yourself? Do this and live. Let's understand what he's saying. When he says do this, it's present tense. It means you have to do it all the time. You have to keep the law perfectly if you're going to live. As James warns us, he who falters at but one point of the law, James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. Jesus is saying, do it if you can, keep all of it and you will live. That's the language of the Old Testament itself. Here's just a few samples. Earlier in Leviticus, chapter 18, verse 5, in Leviticus, again, a lot of laws about holiness and cleanliness and purity. Leviticus 18.5, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. If you haven't broken a single commandment, you're fine. You're good to go. The prophets as well, Ezekiel 20, verse 11. I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. If you are a sinless person, you have nothing to worry about. You see, the significance is that present tense of the simple verb to do. You're not just, oh yeah, I loved my neighbor that one time when they really needed some help. No, you need to continue to do this in order to live. You see, we need to understand the vital challenge here. The role of the law. The law shows us what is good and right and what will lead to life. But it also shows us that the soul that sins shall die. And if we miss but one point, we become a sinner. As James says, we're guilty of it all. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 7. We have to pause and and look at this important text. The book of Romans is uh, a wonderful book to study for the doctrine of our salvation. It talks about uh, sin in the first few chapters. It talks about faith like Abraham in chapter 4. It talks about the fruits of salvation in chapters 5 and 6. Romans chapter 7, you may not have read recently, talks about the struggles of the Christian life. And in the midst of Romans 7, we'll begin in verse 7, Paul writes about how the law of God, the word of God, continually Makes him feel guilty. Because it tells him what he should be doing and he's not able to do it. Let's see how Paul, a master of the law of God, inspired by God, what he says. Just this whole paragraph. Romans 7, verses 7 to 12. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive 
apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life, we know what that means now, right? We just surveyed that. Do this and live. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The commandment will show us the path to life. The problem is one false step and we're dead. One sin. And we have a lot of sins. Pastor D. James Kennedy, who founded Evangelism Explosion, uh, tried to help uh, evangelists, just regular Christians who want to share their faith, under, help others understand how great a sinner we are. And one technique they said to use in conversation was this, just say, uh, you know, how often do you sin? And we, we're trying to think, I haven't murdered anybody, I haven't stolen anything. Well, if you're aware of all the sins in the Bible, you could easily say, I sin even just uh, uh, once a day, three times a day. Let's say three times a day. I don't give thanks. I, all these things. Well, three times a day, that's about a thousand sins a year. And how old are you? 40 years? 40,000 sins? And if you were to stop sinning today and try to live, how do you deal with the sins of your past? You see, being aware of sin and what's right doesn't make you able to do it but rather it brings conviction it shows you what's wrong I I'm not loving my neighbor I'm not loving God this is the problem this is why the the light of Romans 7 shining on the parable of the good Samaritan and the lawyer who had to hear it it's bad news for him he knows the law but he's not really keeping it, as we'll find out. Do this and live, and if you can do it perfectly, every day, you'll live. But most of us, all of us, find that we need a Savior because we haven't kept God's law. The law is good, holy, and just, and it does promise life. But as Paul says, it proves to be death for us because we're guilty of breaking God's law. Very important to, to know what Romans 7 teaches. But let's come back to Luke chapter 10. We've seen the, 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 the opening law of love is, is kind of the baseline for this conversation. And the conversation continues even before we get to the parable. Let's go back. Jesus had said, you have the right answer. Do this and live. And then verse 29. Verse 29, I think, comes up because the answer of Jesus was understood by the lawyer. Do this and live. Okay, if, if I'm not doing it, I'm not going to live. So he tries to justify himself. He tries to see if he, he's done enough of that. And he can live. Verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Why would he ask a question like that? Who is my neighbor? Maybe you think about that with your neighborhood. How far can someone live from you and still be a neighbor? Our family was vacationing in 
Colorado Springs, and then we went up, I think, to the top of Pikes Peak. I think that's the name of the thing. And up there, I was a child. And we're in the gift store, and then I saw this really familiar-looking guy who was in my sister's class in high school. I says, hey, you're Mike. Oh, you're one of those Bissets. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're my neighbor. Well, he lived at least five blocks away. I didn't think of him as a neighbor. I just knew who he was. The lawyer here is asking who's my neighbor because he wants to set some kind of limit. He wants to see what his obligations to love are. I don't have to love everybody, right? Just who's my neighbor? A one block radius? What are we talking about here? And he wants to justify himself. To be justified means to be counted righteous in front of God. Uh, If we obeyed God's law perfectly, that would be easy. But if we are unsure, the question arises, am I right with God? One commentator says this question reveals the lawyer's insincerity. It's an improper question, he says, because the lawyer was trying to exclude responsibility for others by making some people non-neighbors. A more appropriate question, he says, would be, how can I be a loving neighbor? Instead of desiring to pursue obeying, he's trying to limit how much he has to obey. We, we, we have that impulse from our childhood, don't we? Mom or dad says, clean your room. says, well, do I have to clean the closet too and under the bed too or just make the outside look okay? You know, we, we try to set the terms or it's almost back to school time, right? And when we get to school, we say, is this going to be in the test? Am I going to need to know that? All right, that's what we ask so we know what to study. When it comes to being right with God, this lawyer, this Jewish man, was asking a question to justify himself and to limit his responsibilities rather than to get help to fulfill them. I can almost see Jesus shaking his head at that. The law shows you what to do, man. Pursue it. Don't try to rein it in. It's like people who say, oh, I've never murdered anyone. They don't really see the murderous thoughts and languages of the heart. That those things are bound up in God's law. Doesn't Jesus teach that in the Sermon on the Mount? I've never committed adultery. Well, you've had that same lust in your heart. We can't make ourselves sinless by redrawing the boundaries. This lawyer was concerned about the role of love and the extent of it. It brings to mind uh, what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13. Let's take another brief uh, sidetrack to 1 Corinthians 13, sometimes called the love chapter of the Bible, right? Um, No one's getting married here today, but we can still read it. It's in the Bible. And actually, we're not going to read the list about love. We're going to read the preface. Because it's possible to be religious without love. This lawyer probably was a straight-A 
student at the Torah school. He probably had the Ten Commandments and more memorized. He probably was clean in his deportment, married with two kids and a picket fence. But externally, it's possible to be outwardly righteous without love. That's what Paul does. He tries to crack through our preconceptions and our facades as he begins 1 Corinthians 13. Let's read verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels. Wow, you could do that? If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. Wow. In verse 3, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. That's what God's word teaches us. Your religious resume, your performance, your externals, your facade, without the heart, has nothing. Nothing. The guy had the right answer. The law is all about love. Jesus said, be loving. Be perfectly loving. And he tried to redraw the boundaries. Seems this lawyer could have fit into this category, having religion without love. Because we know in the parable that's about to come, Jesus describes two unloving religious leaders. And he should see himself there. Before we move on from the question of love, we we should ask, if if love is so vital, how, how do we become loving as we should be? How do we accomplish what God's law requires of us? The Old Testament itself is as clear as the new. In order to do the law of God, you need a new heart. One of the clearest expressions of this is found in Jeremiah 31. If these verses don't ring a bell, turn to Jeremiah 31 and underline them. Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of the Israel. He's talking about the new covenant, Jesus' time. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. They get, they get this new heart. Or as Ezekiel says it. Yes, Ezekiel 36, verse 26. I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. 
And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, 26. The Old Testament calls us to love, love God and love man, and points to the way it can be. We need a new heart. You have to have a new heart to keep the law of God. Otherwise, you'll just be pretending, striving without the inner strength. God looks on the heart. And to help make this clear, Jesus told a parable. So let's get to the parable now, which we all are well familiar with. And I'm not going to break down what the wine means and the two denarii and do allegorizing. That's not why we have the scriptures. Parables typically have one point that they illustrate very clearly. Let's look at the parable of love. Or maybe it's a parable of lovelessness. This man had tried to justify himself and asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. What a beautiful parable. No one in the history of humanity could teach like Jesus. There's a neighbor in need. We don't know who this man was, whether he was foolishly taking a trip, maybe at night, or uh, maybe he was carrying his money bag so everybody could. We don't know. That's not important. He was victimized and he's in need. It's on the Jericho Road from Jerusalem down to Jericho, which is towards the sea. Uh, It would be downhill from the Judean hills going down. And it was a road that was famous for its dangers and its robbers. No surprise there. Nobody's shocked at the fact that some guy got mugged. He's robbed, stripped, beaten, half dead. So he was still alive. Which only brings a little bit more guilt to the two Jewish professionals that come along. Notice how Jesus quickly gets to those who come and he's going to show who has love and who doesn't. The first is a priest. The second is a Levite. These are significant religious people of the day. Priest, you might think of in terms of a pastor or something, someone famous. A priest technically was a descendant of Aaron. Among all the Levites, they would be involved in the temple service in a very special way. A Levite was from the tribe of Levi, but not necessarily the house of Aaron. So he would be a helper. He'd be like the assistant. He'd be involved in the temple. And interestingly enough, if we pay attention, they're both going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. What does that tell us? It tells us that that they're off duty. Their their shift was over 
which could be like a week or a season of time, and then they go back to their home. So they're going down the road. They're off duty. They don't have to go right back to the temple. And their concerns, if you knew the priests and the Levites and, and the Pharisees' mindset, anybody could be a Pharisee, someone who had strict compulsions about the law and keeping it. They often went overboard on their spiritual cleanliness. The Bible did say if you touch a dead body, uh, you're impure and you can't go to church. You can't do certain things for a period of time. If you touch a dead body and sometimes if you interact with blood. And and so perhaps the priest and the Levite are saying, oh, I I don't want to touch him and become impure. Some even said if your shadow falls on a dead body. You're impure. The links they would go to avoid any proximity. The man wasn't dead, for one, but they didn't want to get close enough to find out. And you know what? If they were off duty, headed home, could not they risk ritual impurity, perhaps to save a life? Jesus had all sorts of scorn for the hypocrites who were at the head of the Jewish faith. So many of them were hypocrites. These types, the priests and the Levites, would certainly be considered the wise and understanding of the world. But they apparently miss the heart of the law. They don't stop. They don't check for signs of life. They go around as obviously as can be. But there's a third person here in the parable that comes along, the Samaritan, the despised Samaritan. He's the one who shows some real love. Do you remember who Samaritans were? The the peoples that came from the ten northern tribes when the kingdom of David split. Judah and Benjamin stayed in the south around Jerusalem. The ten northern tribes, they set up their own place of worship in Samaria and and, Judah. Uh, They intermarried with a lot of Gentiles and they had a lot of unusual beliefs. They were held in great disdain by true Jews. We've talked about that previously in the gospel. So Jesus brings a hero into the story who just happens to be a Samaritan. And he does that for extra effect, does he not? To illustrate the heart of the matter. The Samaritan comes, he sees the man, he sees the man and he has compassion. His heart is not a heart of stone. It appears to be a heart of flesh. He has care and concern. He sees him and he has compassion. Oh, I hope you're okay. I'll pray for you. I'll I'll be back in a few days. I'll see if you're still there. No. That's not what he does. He has compassion. And you know what? It's genuine compassion. He puts his hands and feet where his mouth is, where his heart is. He goes over. He went to him and bound up his wounds. Yes, that means wiping away the blood. Perhaps taking strips of cloth from his own garments to bind up something that may be bleeding profusely. We don't know. He pours oil and wine. He gives of his own travel resources, which are probably meager, to attend to this man medicinally. Takes him to an inn. Stays with him. Cares for him. And provides for him when he has to leave. This is extravagant 
lavish love. And we still don't feel that twist of plot that it's a Samaritan who's the loving one. Maybe we need to convert it to uh, a different category. In seminary, my New Testament professor, Dr. Bob Stein, said, can you imagine um, a a Nazi, someone in the SS, when he was uh, traveling and he found a Jewish person by the side of the road who was injured and the the Nazi uh, helps the Jew? It's just a category we don't think of. Or modern times, since many don't remember World War II, young people. The, the Gulf War, can you imagine an Iraqi, a Muslim, finding an American soldier who's wounded and caring for him? It's really unusual. But it's a clear illustration of the presence of real love. And again, the parable is but a picture that makes a point. And what's the point here? The despised Samaritan has real love. It's not the hearers of the word of God that are justified. It's not those who know the word of God that are justified. Those who believe and do the word of God that are justified. This despised Samaritan is actually a picture of Christ's love. He comes and loves extravagantly doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. The good news of Christianity, as many know from John 3, 16, is all about love. It starts in love. For God so loved the world. The world and its rebellion and its sin, its brokenness, its defiance, its rebellion, its idolatry. We don't need you, God. Thanks for nothing. God so loved the world that he sent His only begotten Son. Jesus came full of grace and truth. Jesus had great compassion. Jesus would touch a leper and heal him. Jesus would stoop and speak with a child. Jesus does for us what we could not do for ourselves. Showing us divine love. Changing us forgiving us, cleansing us, and then empowering us to love others. As the parable ended, there was this additional line that Jesus spoke, verse 36. Which of these three do you think, he says this to the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? That's a different question. The first question was, who are my neighbors? So, I know for my checklist. Jesus says, no. What's in your heart? What are you willing to be? Which one proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He got it right. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go do likewise. Do this and live. But the commands of God often find us falling short, find us in our sin and our need, which drives us to our Savior. The law of God shows us our sin. The law of God shows us our Savior, the sinless one. 
And when we become converted, then Jesus sends us back to the law. This is the way you should live. And you can do it now because I've given you a new heart. If this man did not receive a new heart, he could not go and do likewise. Let's wrap up with a few exhortations. I've got three and a P.S., so keep listening for the P.S. Three, be clear. Love is at the heart of Christianity. Christianity is not just a list of do's and don'ts. There are plenty of do's and don'ts. God has opinions. Thou shalt not. Thou shall. Pretty clear. But beneath it all is our love for God and our love for our neighbor as ourself. Love is at the heart of Christianity. Love is at the heart of our Savior's work for us. So if you limit your understanding of Christianity, and what does it take to inherit eternal life by carrying a Bible, going through the motions without a heart? This parable is bad news for you. Love is at the heart. Secondly, be convicted. Be convicted. No one is saved by external works of the law. If this has troubled you, this distinction between being religious and being loving from a new heart, you need to revisit the book of Galatians, particularly chapters 2 and 3. In Galatians 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul would write this, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Galatians 3 verses 10 and 11. Just doing the do's and avoiding the don'ts falls short. You won't be justified. So my third exhortation is be converted. Be changed. Be transformed. Don't just adopt Christianity, but let Christianity, let Christ change you. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Be born again with new spiritual vitality that you have a heart of flesh that can love your neighbor, that can love your enemy, that can love God in ways that please him. Be converted. Only Christ can give you a new heart. Another verse from Galatians, Galatians 2.16. For we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It's not enough just to say not that way. The Bible tells us this way. Faith in Christ. Come to him. Let him transform you. Make you new. Wipe away your sin. And put a love for God and holiness and for your neighbor in your heart. Be clear about love. Be convicted about the limit of religion. And be converted. Come to Christ. Let him change you. And here's the P.S. If you are new in Christ, go and do likewise. 
be loving. This is the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this familiar parable and for its power as your word speaks to us afresh and strips away our presumptions that we can do all these things and be justified. Father, your word shows us our need for a Savior and then shows us the path we should follow. Father, may we come to Christ. May we live in Christ. And in Christ, may we love others rightly. Oh, Father, straighten out those here who need this straightening out. Take the religious and make them right with you. Put in our hearts a heart of flesh. Write your law within. So it is our passion, not just a curiosity to justify ourselves. My hope is based on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Father, thank you. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.